Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Yiming Ha, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Sean Cronin, who is a PhD student at UC Berkeley. He joins me today to talk a little bit about the Ming Dynasty's involvement in Southwest China. So, welcome, Sean. Hi, Yiming. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about Ming in the Southwest. Yeah. So before we get into the specifics of Ming rule in the Southwest, I think some background context is in order because up until the mid to late 1250s, when the Mongols conquered the area, the Southwest wasn't under the control of any Chinese dynasties. And the Southwest here refers to the regions what is now today Yunnan Province, Guizhou Province, and a little bit of Sichuan as well. So let's start off with why. Was there an involvement in the Southwest? If for a thousand years or so, the Southwest was this distinct polity that was really more Southeast Asian in character than it was Chinese in character, why did the China-centered empires get involved in the Southwest? That's a fantastic question, and one that I think really puzzles historians, given the paucity of sources about Guizhou and Yunnan before the second millennium. So there had been some political involvement by the Han and, of course, Liu Bei and various other political actors in the first millennium, with parts of what is today northern Yunnan and then through much of Sichuan. And in the Tang, there had been attempts to subjugate the Nanjiao polity under the suzerainty of the Tang. But famously, the founder of the Song in the 960s, 970s. Decided to not pursue conquest beyond really northern Yunnan at all, ceding the entire area to the Kingdom of Dali, because he and his new dynasty were so busy fighting the Khitans on the northern frontier. But then you get to the Mongol dynasty, and through the 1250s, Mughal Khan and then later Kublai Khan go through Dali in order to get to the Song from the southwest. So originally, integration of the Southwest into a larger Eastern Eurasian Empire is a military strategy. But then, as the UN starts to become crystallized as an administrative structure, they have to start innovating new strategies for governing Yunnan, like a secretariat in any other part of the dynasty. So in the early Ming, it was well known that Yunnan, as an administrative unit, was really only integrated. Into a larger Eastern Eurasian Empire during the Yuan, and originally, as anti-Yuan forces were coming up in the 1350s, 60s, in like Southeast China, for example, it was not always inevitable to everybody that Yunnan would be part of a project to restore the Central Plain for the Zhongyuan. So, for example, before the Ming gained ultimate supremacy in China proper. There were a number of different polities vying for influence. So Chen Youliang and Zhang Shicheng and these guys, they were very engaged in conquering various parts of Southeast China and at war with each other. But there were other times when competing political actors were actually on relatively good terms. One of which was the Mingxia Dynasty. No relation to the Ming Dynasty as we know it. He was founded by a guy whose surname was Ming Ming Yuzhen. He and the Ming founder Zhu Yanzhong were on relatively diplomatic terms, 
And then around 1365 or so, Ming Yuzhen actually did try to invade Yunnan to integrate into his Xia dynasty, and he failed. And later on, in a letter to Ming Yuzhen, Zhu Yuanzhang, who would later go on to become the first Ming emperor, actually criticized Ming Yuzhen, saying it wasn't time to go out and conquer barbarians in the Southwest, as he said. Now is the time to create institutions, restore the Zhongyuan, and not get into these sorts of battles on the periphery. Others in the early Ming actually espoused a similar attitude. And up until the 1380s, there were attempts by the Ming to treat Yunnan. And basically, Yunnan here refers to the former Yuan prince of Liang, called Bajarvarmin was his name, as well as the collaborator kingdom of Dali. So there were attempts to integrate these Yunnanese polities into the tributary system on the same basis that one would send ambassadors to Japan or Goryeo or Tran Vietnam. And it was only after the rejection of diplomatic ties with the Ming under the pressure of Northern Yuan forces that Vajravarmi and the Dali kings started to set a hard line against the Ming. And that was really what brought upon the Ming invasion. So really until the 1380s, there were a lot of possibilities for the way that Yunnan would be integrated or not integrated into Eastern Eurasia broadly. As with most things involving the early Ming, one can't really detach it from the Yuan because as you mentioned, Yuan had a prince there, the Prince of Liang. And it really makes you wonder, had the Prince of Liang actually submitted to Zhu Yanzhang, the Hongwu Emperor, what would have happened to Yunnan? Would it still have been integrated into China or would it have been some sort of independent polity or might have been something like the northeast of China, which was under Ming military control, but politically has a lot of powers vying for control and influencers. So in some ways, I think it might be an accident of history, right? That the Prince of Liang decided to be very anti-Ming and that brought on an invasion into the Southwest. Absolutely. I mean, you know, 1381, the Ming raises 300,000 troops and invades Kunming and Dali. And by spring of 1382, they have deposed all former Yuan forces and they've situated new Ming governments in both of these cities. But really up until that point, there were so many possibilities. In fact, some sources allege that within the Prince of Liang's court, there were multiple factions, one of which was actually pushing him to acquiesce to the Ming, because the Ming was not actually demanding much. It was just asking that they recognize Ming rather than Yuan sovereignty. Interestingly, when one of the Ming ambassadors arrived in what is now Qinming, used to be called Yunnanfu, when one of the ambassadors arrived, there was also a Northern Yuan ambassador at the Kunming court at that time. And it was under pressure by him that the Prince of Liang decided he couldn't be seen as being soft on the Ming. And so he had to have this ambassador executed. And that was the final straw for Zhu Yuanzhang, it said. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think another reason that I've seen brought up for the Ming invasion was that, and this is something I talked about a little bit in my episode on the Yuan conquest of the Song, was that originally the plan for the conquest of Yunnan was to open another front against the southern Song from the southwest. But this never happened because Kublai managed to take Xiangyang and he went down the Yangtze from there. So when Zhu Yanzhang formed the Ming, he was similarly concerned that pro-Yuan forces in Yunnan could possibly link up with the northern Yuan and attack him from the Southwest. So that was why he was engaging with the Prince of Liang. And then after that failed, he launched his military invasion. 
So that kind of brings me then to my next question: Is that now that the Hong Emperor has conquered the Southwest, which again before the Yuan, the Mongol Yuan had never been under the control of a China-based empire, how did he govern Yunnan and Guizhou, this area of the Southwest? How was it integrated into the empire and brought under its control? That's a fantastic question. I think something that scholars are still trying to fully understand. Really, if we look at a map of Yunnan Province or Guizhou today. Much of what constitutes modern Southwest China was by 1350 or 1360 really hardly under control of the Prince of Liang or even the Dali Kingdom. So the Ming conquest of Yunnan in 1380s is really a conquest of Dali and Qingyan and of northeastern Yunnan almost exclusively. One thing that often gets missed in traditional scholarship is it's usually assumed that in the 1380s, okay. The Ming send out a huge force. Yunnan is conquered. Now let's move on to think about whatever other conquest. But if we actually get into the nitty gritty of things and define Ming presence by like active military presence or an appointed regular Ming official or multiple officials or administration, it shows really that Ming presence was very limited to Qingming and Dali in the 14th century and even their surrounding periphery. So there's one moment where the founding Ming emperor. Writes to one of his generals at one point, clearly stating that they don't even have the supply lines necessary to extend into the hinterland of Dali. So these maps of like early Ming Yunnan are super misleading. What really was the case was that after deposing the last Yuan remnants in Yunnan, the Ming found themselves in a very complex interstate environment in what is really Upper Mainland Southeast Asia. So they were engaging with Yi, Lolo, Jingbo, and of course Dai polities, and then this interstate environment even extended south to Burma. So I think a productive direction for figuring out how the Ming brought Yunnan under its control is to look at how it interacted with some of these polities. So traditionally, this is talked about in what people describe as the so-called Tuzhidu or maybe native official system, in which the Ming. Nominally, has sovereignty or suzerainty, depending on how you interpret it, over areas beyond the Irrawaddy River or beyond the Mekong or beyond even the Salween River. But actually, all the day-to-day administration is being done by a Dai or a Lolo administrator who was not appointed by the Ming and whose family and his polity had actually been controlling that area probably since before the Ming invasion. So these native chieftain system that you've mentioned about, in essence, then what the Ming did was they simply gave titles or recognized local rulers there and had them govern that area on behalf of the Ming state. Other than that, did they exercise any control over them? That's a good question, and it really varies from case to case. So there are some cases where the Upper Mainland Southeast Asian polity. Like for example, Tianrong, which is called Chali in the、um, Chinese sources. That's like Sipsongpana area today, or Shishongpana area today. That was a state that had recognized Yuan authority and had a Yuan seal. And then they saw the writing on the wall in like 1380, and they said, "Okay, we're in it with the Ming." And so the Ming listed them as a Ming tributary state and native office. But this was a polity that had its own long tradition. And so this was merely about changing their nominal recognition of suzerainty from the Yuan to the Ming. But there are some other polities 
somewhat closer to Qingming and Dali, that the Ming did play a larger role in replacing or maneuvering in its political environment in the 1380s. So a lot of these native officials were people who had contributed in some way to the Ming conquest of the Yuan remnants in the Southwest. Others were people who had followed the Ming generals all the way there. Some of these native officials then aren't native at all, actually, but they weren't like placed through the regular bureaucracy. And then the other thing is that throughout the end of the 14th century, the Ming is really constantly fighting wars with recalcitrant qualities, sometimes small, sometimes large, many of which do end up submitting. And I think it's fair to say that even though there's probably not a Ming administrator in most polities or even like cities or townships, let's say north of the Irrawaddy River in 1400, that almost all the territory, at least north of the Irrawaddy, has at least nominally recognized the Ming and is willing to go along with Ming prerogatives militarily. I suppose another factor might be that because the Ming garrisons, the majority of Ming military forces were located in these major population centers such as Kunming and Dali and Guizhou, it's easier for them to control these native officials closer to those centers. But it seems from what you described that Ming control over this southwestern area is very tenuous. So how did Ming administrators manage the frictions and the issues that undoubtedly arose in that area? So there's one particular case that I think really well illustrates this, at least for the early men. So one particularly large and hegemonic polity that the Ming fought against in the late 14th century was the Meng Mao Empire, a Thai polity that was based in what is now Rui this kind of very southwestern tip of Yunnan today. This was a Thai polity that seems to have exerted at least suzerainty, if not outright sovereignty, over much of southwestern Yunnan, northeastern Burma, and even part of northern Thailand today. The Yuan had previously run in with the Mao Empire in the mid-14th century, but they seem to have had very little success. And eventually they ceded much of what was Yuan Yunnan south of Hunming to the Mao. The Ming administrators in the 1370s and 80s were shocked that actually most of this territory was actually at least paying tribute to, if not actually being administered by these Dai politicians, Meng Mao administrators. The Ming did win a series of important battles in 1388 against the Mao, and they secured nominal submission of the Mao, even establishing diplomatic contacts with them as nominally a tributary state of the Ming. But this didn't really stop the raids into what was understood at the time as Ming Yunnan. So really, if we want to think about the factors that facilitated Ming control beyond the Irrawaddy River and then even beyond the Salween River, it has to do with how the Ming manipulates the interstate environment of Upper Mainland Southeast Asia. And the Ming get really lucky here. In 1398, the king of Meng Mao, a king named Sa Pa, kind of really mismanaged the political situation of his kingdom, and he found himself overthrown. And in an attempt to save himself and regain his throne, he asks the Ming for help. When they send troops, within less than a year, they defeat his usurper and they have him back on the throne. And what happens in the wake of this is key. Ming generals, perhaps in correspondence with the short-lived Dianwen court in Nanjing, which was well known, I'll mention, for its tangible centralizing influence, getting rid of enfiefed 
princes, as well as trying to reduce the autonomy of some of these native officials. So potentially the Jianwen court in correspondence with these Ming generals bring up the idea of partitioning the Mongmao empire actually. And the way they do this is by recognizing Mao vassals, sometimes even guys who were appointed by the Mao king himself. So therefore like not locals of the areas they're governing. They recognize these guys as rulers in their own right and therefore as Ming native officials and they give them Ming seals. So these frictions with neighboring polities were not rare at all, but the way they're dealt with often was not by full out invasion and integration, which would have been prohibitively expensive and logistically almost impossible, especially given that the Ming was still fighting wars on multiple fronts, most notably the Northern Front. So rather than that, they actually relied on local allies to make short inroads, working within the interstate system of the Southwest to achieve their goals. And I should also mention that in a lot of cases, it was also in the interest of these local rulers to work together with the Ming, particularly in cases where the Ming was fighting wars, because these local rulers can then make demands of the Ming court. Hey, if you want me to help you, you got to give something in return. But I do want to also point out the fact that there were military campaigns that the Ming waged throughout its reign against polities in the Southwest. And one particularly big one was the so-called Lu-Chuan campaigns, which took place in the 1430s under the reign of the Zhengtong Emperor, who's more known for his capture by the Orats in 1449. But even before then, his court was engaged in a costly war with the polities there. So what's the history behind that? And did the Ming win that war? That's a really important point. And I think it's fair to say that as far as the early Ming is concerned, or let's say the early to mid-Ming, the Lutran campaigns are perhaps the most important southwestern campaign at that time. So Lutran is actually the Chinese name for Mumao. The Shuili River was called Lu. The stakes of the Lutran campaigns, which as you mentioned, were orchestrated by this Zhengtong court, really had to do with this interstate system of southwest China, upper mainland Southeast Asia. Basically, around the turn of the 15th century, the Ming had figured out somewhat of a stalemate with the various Thai polities beyond the Salween River. So, for example, the kings of Meng Mao accepted, albeit begrudgingly, that many of their former vassals actually pay tribute to the Ming as well as to the Mao. And for example, the Mao administrator in a place called Sanhui, or that is just known in Burmese today, Danyi, actually had the ability to petition to the Ming court and to rely on the Ming to achieve its goals and not just the Mao. What happens in the 1420s and 30s, though, is that the Mao aristocracy, together with a series of new kings, one after another, start to try to conquer back some of that territory, deposing Ming-friendly administrators and governors and imposing their own people once again. So in the 1430s and 40s, the idea is to once again subdue the Mao Empire and to restore the political situation as it had been imagined in the early 15th century. However, actually, if we look at Chinese documents from this time, these campaigns garnered widespread opposition in Beijing. So there were a huge amount of Chinese officials in the Ming that were very much opposed to the Luchuan campaigns. And the reasoning was partially that the eunuch Wang Zhen had basically somewhat control of the court at that time. 
So part of their part of their dissent was about resisting unit government, as they call it. But then a lot of it also had to do with a unwillingness to spend the money that it was going to take to subdue a polity so far away from the heartland. And then there were others who said that it was not really the priority of the Ming, even early on, to subjugate polities that far away. You could go out and stop a border raid. You can intervene in the interstate situation. But going out there, fire and brimstone just really wasn't in the vocabulary for a lot of Ming officials. In the end, what they ended up doing was they went way further in the 1430s and 40s than the Ming had done in the late 14th century. And as a result, they they captured the last real king of Mung Mao, and they basically ended the Mung Mao Empire. There was still a state there in, in what's really today, but it never had the teeth that it had previously. And then this was also a time that was a real boon for a lot of the neighboring polities because they all ended up gaining more territory under the Ming. A lot of them were enfiefed with new titles. A lot of military officials were also enfiefed with new titles and given higher stipends and whatnot from this. So this was a real turning point in the way that the Ming dealt with polities that were previously thought of as really beyond the pale. So this was the first time they decided to really put their fingerprints on remolding the Southwest, kind of beyond the Quinming Dali area. But it's important to note that the world that they thought they were going to be building was one that had its space in the early 15th century. I haven't read anything about the Lufran campaign for quite a bit, but from what I remember, this was a very long and difficult campaign. It seemed there were several of these military campaigns against Lufran because guy they were trying to fight against kept surrendering and then rebel and then surrendering and rebel. So it seems that even though the Ming had the capacity, if it really wanted to mount these large-scale military campaigns, it still was very difficult for them to actually go into the Southwest and fight. It was. And there were several factors that really added to this difficulty, first of which was climate. There were many reports of Chinese soldiers who were from essentially the Central Plains going and getting malaria. Whereas in other parts of Eastern Eurasia, you can fight relatively all year long. It's best not to fight in winter is my understanding, but otherwise you basically can. Whereas they would say that in the Southwest, kind of beyond Dali and Quinmian, really beyond the Irrawaddy River, they would say, we have to pull back around the kind of spring and summer because that's when the malaria is really strong. The kind of the Jiangti or whatever one might call it. And there were some huge losses that were taken by the Ming, really unprecedented until Tumu, of course. One of the assistant generals really early on disobeyed orders from the provincial general Mu Sheng. And then this guy, Feng Zheng, he uh, crossed the river when he was explicitly told not to. And really Ming policy was we don't cross the river because we can't get our supply lines there. We can't mobilize enough troops beyond there. The climate is bad. The Mao know the territory better than we do. And Feng Zheng goes, crosses the river, he gets annihilated. And this becomes such a huge scandal that Mu Sheng actually has to poison himself and take his own life in response. So the Lutran campaigns were full of scandal and big losses. But you're right that on the whole, if the Ming court set its mind to it, they absolutely had the ability to really mobilize a huge amount of troops and to subjugate a polity like Mung Mao. 
So it seems that the court, if it could, would rather deal with things diplomatically and politically rather than resort to military conquest. But you did mention a bit earlier that this kind of led to a sort of reorientation of what was going on in the Southwest. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How did the Lu Chuan campaigns change Ming political rule in the Southwest, aside from just wiping this native chieftaincy or this kingdom off the map? You know, scholars often talk about the way that these native offices become integrated into the official Ming bureaucracy, and they, they call this process gaituguilio, of changing the native office into the rotating regular bureaucracy. But this process was really much later, not until at least the 16th century, and really not until the Qing at a greater pace. So even after the 1440s, the Ming is still ruling through native officials. The big difference here is that by removing, I think what is fair to say, the largest hegemon in upper mainland Southeast Asia at that time, the Ming freed up the interstate environment, allowing many other political actors to establish their own claims throughout southwestern Yunnan, northern Burma, northern Thailand. And these polities might not have necessarily been able to govern, kind of self-govern and appeal to the Ming for assistance and whatnot to the extent they were able to in the 15th century, especially after 1440s. So there were some states like Daini that we talked about before, as well as Mengbing, that when you look at their histories, they all really note Ming intervention in the Southwest as really the beginning of their independence myth or their origin story. And it all begins in their history books with the decline of the Mao, the Ming Lutran campaigns, sometimes the usurpation of Sahompa. And so I think if we're to identify the legacy of early Ming policy in the Southwest, and especially the Lutran campaigns, I think it's fair to say that from, let's say, 1390 to 1450, this was a time when the political order of Southwest China that was built. And this was a political order that would go on to be upheld to a certain extent all the way to the 19th century. In the 1880s, you have a native official from a place called Mengbing sending in a petition to the, the Guangxu emperor asking to be given a seal because his father had died and it was his turn. And in those petitions, you have to describe the history of your place. And he says, our polity exists more or less because the Meng Mao kings behaved badly, the Ming successfully defeated them, and then we've been carrying on since then, and then we submitted to the Qin. It's easy, I think, when looking at the Ming and some of the huge accomplishments of, for example, the Yongle emperor, the invasions in the north, the innovations in governance even within the empire itself, I think it's easy sometimes to forget about the Southwest and say, okay, that's Luchuan, that's whatever Southwestern polity, it's a blip on the map. But when we look at it in more detail, we find that actually the political situation that we get for almost the entirety of late imperial Chinese history was really made in the, at this time, in the early men, and really especially by the Luchuan campaigns. Wow, that's very interesting. And I absolutely agree that Southwest China, that part of China and its history, was often really seen as a footnote until recently in the past two or three decades that scholars have seriously looked at it. But the fact that the Ming was able to remold 
the interstate order there. That's something that I think is still very much understated in current historiographical studies of the Ming and Ming rule in the region. And it's, it's very interesting that a lot of these states, as you mentioned, they trace their origin myth back to the Ming instead of some native or their own kind of traditions is no, it's the Ming that kind of gave us our independence and allowed us to create our state. So another change that happens starting from the mid-Ming onward, so after 1449, and this picks up especially in the 16th century, is that there starts to be waves of Han Chinese migration into the Southwest. If you look at the Han Chinese population of the Southwest before this period, it was mainly military men, soldiers and their households. And they were concentrated in major cities or forts or garrisons located in the highlands of the Southwest. But after that, an emergent starts to go there and then a lot of civilians start to go there. Why was that the case? So that's a really important question, the extent of Han migration. With regard to the 16th century particularly, although the 15th century, late 15th century also saw this phenomenon, there was a lot of Han migration in search of the kind of gem trade that was going on in what is the Shan states today. Even today, we look at where do a lot of rare earth minerals and rubies and whatnot come from. And one, one place is from northern Burma and southwestern China. So you had a lot of Han migrants going in and trying to exploit those resources. Then there was also just the general rise in population at that time. And so that naturally would lead to more people being in more parts of the empire. But Indeed, we do see, even in Qingming and Dali, a huge rise in Han migration in the 16th century compared to previous times. So outside of Qingming and Dali, you have places like Jizushan, which ends up with this flourishing Buddhist culture based on monks from Henan and monks from Shanxi. And this is really a 16th century phenomenon. It's important to note, though, that actually there seems to have been significant Han migration into Yunnan, even in the Yuan. And we can see this in the early Ming sources. So when the first Ming emperor is trying to gain intelligence from his field administrators and military generals about the extent to which the Yuan prince of Liang was in charge of various polities, or what were these upper mainland Southeast Asian states like, he usually had his administrators go out and ask Han people out there. And there seems to have even been Han Chinese living beyond Qinming and Dali at this time. So when the Mao King Sahompa was usurped, it was actually a retinue of Han Chinese settlers in the Hmong Mao capital that fled with him together to go and submit to the Ming. And it's potentially, it could be under their influence that he decided to go to look to the Ming. So it seems that there had been significant enough Han migration, even during the Yuan, to facilitate some sorts of Ming goals even early on. But certainly this expanded quite a bit in the 16th century. Yeah, and I think one of the major themes when we look at Chinese history as a whole is that there is this theme of migration right, from the Central Plains out to all parts of what is today constituted as China. But yeah, I think starting in the 16th century, Yunnan becomes this new frontier that really for a lot of people is this land of opportunity. And there is a lot of Han Chinese people who start to go there. And indeed, there were opportunities, especially in the mines, as you mentioned. And I'll just add that another major mineral that Yunnan produces copper, which is used in coin. But this really doesn't become important until the Qing dynasty. But even in the Ming, the copper mines start to be opened. 
But I imagine there would also be conflict as well, particularly between the new Han Chinese settlers and the local officials and their people who had been settled there. Can you speak a little bit about these conflicts that took place? Absolutely, especially beyond the Irrawaddy River in this area of a lot of dye polities where you find great gemstones. There was quite a bit of conflict between Han settlers and merchants and the indigenous polities that were there at the time. So there's famous case, at least in the history of Yunnan, in which some eunuchs that had been sent by the government were actually investing in this gemstone mining and trading at the expense of local people, local Thai people. And they were even sponsoring internal political coups in order to get Thai administrators in these regions that were like pro-gemstone mining. And this was quite a scandal for the court, as well as for provincial administrators. So there was quite a bit of that. And one thing that always fascinated me when I look into the history of the Ming in the Southwest, and I know this is very controversial, particularly in mainland China, is how imperialistic Ming policy seemed to have been. If you look at what the British were doing, for example, in Africa, they were also relying on native officials who were pro-British to rule. There was this imposition of culture on to the native population. In, in the case of China, the Ming, right, they were building schools and trying to indoctrinate Confucianism. And then this was backed up by migration and an attempt to assimilate native people. So yeah, it, it definitely strikes me as there was some imperialistic tendencies. But again, this is very controversial if to say that China was an imperialistic nation. But I think the parallels here are too uncanny to say that this was a coincidence. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, especially given that the Ming was really inheriting the area from the Yuan at first. But the Yuan government that was there at the time was really not functional for anything besides maintaining the Qinming court or the Dali court. So they were innovating their own strategies as they went. One of these strategies was basically based on the idea that it would be unwise to require local Thai people or even Han Chinese migrants or new immigrants like during the Yuan period to pay hefty taxes in order to support the Ming military. So they would do these military farms or Twintian in which like 80% of the time you'd be farming and 20% of the time you'd be on, on guard. And it was a, a, a slow process to get these military farms up and running in order to really extend Ming supply lines and facilitate the sort of campaigns like the Lutran campaign, which really would not have been possible in 1380, for example, but really was in 1440. The comparison with British imperialism or whatever is an interesting one, too. I think generally my sense is that the Ming in Yunnan really owes more to older Eurasian empires, we could go back as far as the Achaemenids to a certain extent. But certainly the institution of schools, it does say something about the imposition of culture, as well as the use of local intermediaries and local allies to facilitate longer imperial reach than military technology or supply lines were able to support. And naturally, this comparison gets stronger when they start in the late Ming and early Qing replacing local I or Lolo or Yi Jingpa administrators and adding in regular Ming bureaucrats who were like took the exam and then their appointment was to go and be the 
magistrate of some faraway town uh, in predominantly non-Han part of Yunnan. Right, right. And this is not to say that Ming, if you want to call it imperialism or whatnot, is the same as British imperialism and colonialism in Africa and India and other parts of the world. But it's just to point out that there were parallels in practice in regards to how the Ming was dealing with the Southwest. This, again, calls into the question of empire. How do we categorize these actions, the action of empires or something else? But also the other aspect of it is that Ming policy, to my knowledge, tended to facilitate between whether or not we should assimilate these native people and their officials or whether we should leave them alone. And there is a lot of disagreement and conflict about what we should do, whether we should guide to Guilio or whether we should leave them be. And different administrators at different times had different policies. So it was not like a uniform policy that, yes, this is what we're going to do, but it very much changed based on who was in charge at the time. But going back to the topic of opportunities, I think the opportunities that Han migration brought to the Southwest was not just for the Han settlers and the Ming state, but certain Tusipolities, these native officials, also benefited. And I think two of the big Tusus that really took advantage of Han migration and built up their own state was the Shui Xi and the Shui Dong native chieftains. They grew very large and very powerful. And in 1621, as a result of Ming policy, they actually rose up in rebellion in Guizhou and in parts of Sichuan. And this rebellion took eight years to subjugate. I think when people think about the late Ming, the 1620s, we often imagine, oh, the Manchus were in Northeast, and this was followed by the peasant rebellions. But relatively few people know about the rebellion in the Southwest. And this rebellion was so serious that it threatened to end Ming rule in the Southwest. And it took hundreds of thousands of soldiers and a ton of supplies and the Ming eight years to pacify. So this was a very serious rebellion. And a large part of that had to do with the fact that native officials took advantage of Chinese migration. So it doesn't always work in the Ming's favor when you send people over there. Savvy political actors, savvy rulers could also use it against you. Absolutely. I think that the, those sorts of events show us clearly that the Southwest was always really actually important in Ming history, even around the turn of the 17th century, even as the Ming is really trying to hold off the Manchus, as well as kind of peasant rebellions in the interior, they're very much concerned with the Southwest. And it's the same as when we look at early Ming history, I think it's important to look at the late Ming and the early Qing, and always to keep the Southwest in mind. Because when we're thinking about the strain on Ming military forces and finance, the extent to which the court is being drawn in multiple directions, the Southwest is a really important ingredient. So I think it's an absolutely important point. Yeah, yeah. And particularly when you consider that the institution of native chieftaincy survived up until the founding of the PRC, because up until the communist takeover of China, no polity could exercise that much control over local society. So even into the Republican period, they still had to depend on native chieftains to govern parts of Yunnan. So this is, again, a very fascinating institution with a long and fascinating history. And it's interesting that a lot of this ties back to what was going on in the early Ming. I think that part has really been understudied. And I want to thank you for taking the time to explain to us these nuances and what the court was doing in the late 14th and early 15th century that kind of, I would say, created the environment that allowed these later developments to take place. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure to be here and to have this great conversation with you. Thanks for having me on. 
So that concludes our interview for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.